in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, this is Patrick Pister, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE and the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, leaders in PPE, ensuring your people home safe every day. I am joined today by my special guest host and lovely wife, Amanda Pister, who knows way more about this topic than I do, so please don't upstage me. <laughs> I'll try not to. And we also have an awesome guest, Laura Putnam, CEO of Motion Infusion and author of the book, Workplace Wellness That Works. Laura, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Patrick and Amanda. So this is a topic that I think every... Every business, every corporate, you know, large business in the oil and gas industry has some form of wellness program, but I don't think it's something that's really well understood. So I'm going to really just pass it over to you. And can you tell our audience what a wellness program is and why they need to be doing something? Well, I think that a wellness program, as it should be, is one that helps people to actually be healthier, happier, and their better selves, if you will. But I think the way workplace wellness typically looks is something very different. So are we talking just medical benefits or buying somebody a Fitbit and saying, hey, get your 10,000 steps in today? Yeah, I mean, it, it takes all kinds of different forms. But basically, the, the typical template for workplace wellness is a three-step process. Step one, some type of assessment, which is usually either a health risk assessment. So you fill out a questionnaire and the point is to identify your so-called risks, like you're not exercising enough or you're stressed out or uh, you're overweight. Or, so these are individual assessments. Correct. So individuals, uh, individual employees taking these questionnaires and basically self-reporting these risks. And then the other typical form of individual assessment which in my view is even more invasive, so-called biometric screening. So that's some type of, of clinical screening, at, uh, you know, measuring your blood pressure, weighing you, checking to see what your cholesterol level is. And then uh, one or both of those is followed up uh, typically by some type of feedback. So it might be an online report like, hey, you're really stressed out or you're overweight, <laughs> whatever, you know, here are your risks. Or it might be a call from a coach. And then though that step two is typically followed up by some type of program, step three, if you will. And so the range of programs can be everything from, you know, some type of fit, fit program that you spoke about earlier, a walking challenge. It could be a smoking cessation program. It could be a diabetes education program. It could be a lunch and learn on how to manage your stress better. It could be a mindfulness program. Uh, you know, a whole range of different types of programs that are really geared toward educating people on these different aspects of health and wellness. And here are some tips that you can apply in order to improve your health and well-being. So that is the typical kind of wellness program. And how do you know where to really focus? So you have these individual assessments, and then is it somebody internally just kind of looking, all right, we have a lot of smokers, or we have a lot of people with high cholesterol, 
Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a mix of office workers and, and men and women out in the field that are very physically active. So we've got a mix of issues. How do you, I guess, how do you focus your efforts to get the most bang for your buck and, and actually improve the wellness of your, of your team? Well, so the, the point of those assessments are really twofold. One is to create a baseline for the organization and to kind of take a look at, wow, we've got a lot of people who are stressed out, or we've got a lot of people who are diabetic, or we've got a lot of people who are overweight. And then the other part is to alert individuals, especially at-risk individuals. Like you really need to, well, first of all, for some people, it's like alerting them of the fact that they're, that their glucose levels are high and and they likely have diabetes, for example. But the problem is that that's just one step. Kind of knowing your numbers is just one step. That the real critical issue is how do we actually engage people in practices that help them to improve their health and well-being? And while we typically thought that awareness is a really essential piece and knowledge is is power, what we see is that awareness actually accounts for very a very small percentage of actual behavior change. And if we, what I'm seeing more and more is that if we really want to see an increase in improved health and well-being, we would be wise to begin shifting our focus from putting so much pressure on the, the individual to make, uh, to take quote, quote, personal responsibility for their health and well-being and to on their own make changes in their health and well-being and to instead get smarter about how we as an organization can start to optimize the environment and create a culture that better supports health and well-being in the workplace. Can you give some examples of what what does that look like if you're because mm-hmm. I think the oil and gas industry that we take a lot of personal responsibility everybody you know is in charge of their own safety and it's I guess how does that look on a on a company-wide level to get people moving and, and doing what they need to do. And I think it's an important thing to point out, too, that it's it's more about the organization having that accountability as opposed to, yes, our people are very personally responsible, but mm-hmm. it's but when it comes to company programs, especially employee benefits, they're seen as an entitlement. So, you know, you're supposed to provide health insurance. And now now you're now coming back and telling me that I'm supposed to be personally responsible for it. So, yeah, I think Laura needs to Talk a little bit more about what you've explored in your research and in, and in just in the field about what that really means as far as engaging the, the population. Well, I think that what we can look at is research like the Blue Zones uh, research. And so the research, the Blue Zones research is one in which Dan Butner and his team of researchers have gone around the world and they have identified these hotbeds of longevity. So places like Okinawa in Japan or places like Sardinia in, in Italy or even Loma Linda in California, there is a pocket of people who, who are living into, not just living, but thriving into their hundreds. And right. so what this team has unpacked are the practices that this culture has embraced that enable people to live and thrive such a long, healthy life. And while it's easy to say, oh, wow, those individuals all must be really motivated uh, and invested, you know, taking lots of personal responsibility for their health and well-being, it's in fact... Um, they've, all had, they've all had standing desks for the last century. Right, so. yeah, they, yeah, they, <laughs> right. That. they started that or, or, or they're doing work that doesn't require a desk at all. 
or there, you know, for example, in places like Sardinia, there's no such thing as an old person's home. Rather, people stay with their families for their entire lives. And so not only do they have that social support, but they're also expected to contribute to the household, particularly by taking care of, of the children, their, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And so they have a, a, a continued sense of purpose throughout life. And so it's, it's these kinds of things that are really built into the social fabric where you have access to, to healthy foods. And so certainly that's something that you see in all of these, these so-called blue zones. You have the opportunity not to exercise per se, but really to move naturally. And that's one thing that I'm really trying to help people to understand is the distinction between getting say 30 minutes of exercise every day versus really looking for ways to start to integrate movement into everything that you do. And anytime any of us go to visit parts of the world that are that are more rural and traditional, we are actually reminded of a time when there was no need for exercise because everything that you did in your daily life required movement. So for example, I've lived in Africa for almost three years. And when I lived in Ghana, I lived in a small village and this village had no running water, no electricity. So if I wanted to get a glass of water, I would have to walk a quarter of a mile with a bucket and go down to the water pump and pump a, a bucket of water and then carry that back just so that I could have a glass of water. So that's just one little thing that just shows how much movement uh, is a required part of just daily living. Or for, for example, if I wanted to get into the larger city, then I would have to walk three miles to get any form of transportation. So that's an example where we're really seeing kind of natural movement. Uh, but, but there's also all of these other elements that really that we really need to have in place in order to become our better selves. And, and those are things like social connections, doing work that we love and uh, feeling a sense of purpose in our lives, feeling connected to our community, feeling financially secure. These are all the different kinds of elements of what it means to be well. And um, what we're seeing more and more is that a traditional wellness program has focused too much on risk reduction and looking at things like what's your blood pressure and how much do you weigh, as opposed to do things like, how's your relationship at home? Do you love your wife? Do you, do you feel uh, connected to your husband? How's your relationship with your children? How's your relationship with your bank account? Or are you totally stressed out about your uh, finances? Or uh, you know, do you feel like that the community that you live in reflects your values? Do you feel safe in your community? How about your housing? Do you have access to, to you know, adequate housing? I mean, these are all of the bigger issues. Or do you have access? to good education. I mean, interestingly enough, do you know what the number one predictor of longevity is? It's an education. That's exactly right. Level of education is the number one predictor of longevity. And so what's interesting for me, I, I'm actually a former high school teacher and now in, in the field of, of workplace wellness. And I often reflect on the fact that I may well have been doing more for uh, to benefit our society's health and well-being as a teacher and as an educator than I am in a, a more formal role as somebody who's trying to address this this issue of, of poor health and well-being and helping us to improve it. 
So how can organizations get started with, I mean, I know it's a huge cultural shift that you're suggesting, but I think it's right on in terms of what I've observed in, you know, in the field of in, when it comes to employee benefits where, you know, risk reduction is the name of the game. It's, you know, you're talking about actual insurance and that's the, that's what they're, that's what they're there for to save money on actual, that actual risk reduction. So what can it, what can organizations do to get started? How do they, how do they kind of jump into making this kind of change in, into looking at the, the whole person and, and creating their own blue zone, if you will. Yeah. So I think that the, the, one of the first things that an organization can do is that they can shift their mindset from how do we help individuals, you know, kind of flag at risk individuals and kind of put all this pressure on them to individually make change to instead think about how can we as an organization simply start to make health and well-being easier and more normal here. So again, the point that I was making earlier, how can we optimize the environment and create a culture in which health and well-being is just a new normal here, if you will. So that's a matter of how do we start to bring healthier options here? How do we make sure that people have access to to water. I mean, one great example is a friend of mine who is a senior manager at Microsoft. She bought herself a water bottle and bought a water bottle for everybody else on her team. And then she said, okay, at the beginning of the day, we're all going to fill up our respective water bottles. And by four o'clock in the afternoon, we will have finished our respective water bottles. So it's such a simple little ritual that she has introduced to her team, but it's a very simple way to start to make just getting hydrated more of a, a norm within that w- within that team, so within that microculture. So one of the things that I'm really, uh, a lot of my work now is focused on activating managers to become these multipliers of well-being. So thinking of, of kind of, you know, there's the culture of the larger organization and certainly the senior leaders play a really important role in that. But then there's also the little microculture that every manager can create. And so effectively, every manager has the opportunity to be able to carve out an oasis of well-being for their team. So for their team, for example, they have a regular practice of walking meetings or for this manager, every time they meet for a one-on-one with any of their team members, they begin the walking, the, the meeting with a walking meeting, which is exactly the practice that somebody, the guy who is the head of HR, VP of HR Schindler, Mike Gerchuk, he has a regular practice now of beginning every one-on-one meeting first with a walking meeting and the focus is on building a relationship first. And then they go back into a conference room or to an office to kind of sit down to business. Another great example of that, uh, kind of a, a norm is at Eileen Fisher, they begin every meeting with a moment of silence. So this is just a, a cultural norm that they have there to help people to kind of emotionally regroup. So those are a, a couple of things, but I've got actually a list of 10 steps in my book, Workplace Wellness That Works, that really walks through a number of different pieces that any organization can adopt to either start a wellness program from the ground up or can use these 10 practices to improve upon a wellness program that's already in place. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I love the format of your book because I, I like business books that do that, that, that kind of walk you step by step. And the way you lay it out, it's yeah, it's 10 steps that are easy. If you want to start at the beginning and walk all the way through, this will help you set up a wellness program. So that's an easy plug for your book on this show because I, I just love the format of how you did that. Thank you. I mean, I think, 
you know, to add on to it, another piece that, I mean, Amanda, you're talking a lot about, you know, traditionally we have viewed wellness as a part of benefits. Right. And one of the transitions that we need to really start to make is to start to connect health and well-being to every aspect of business as usual. It's not just part of benefits. Rather, it's an essential part of leadership development. So how can you be an effective leader if you don't have the energy that you need to be an effective leader? And how can you have a high-performing winning team if your team isn't practicing well-being? Or certainly safety, our topic here. How can you possibly be safe if you're not investing in your health and well-being? How can you be safe in a high-risk job environment if you haven't gotten enough sleep the night before or if you're stressed out about money or all of those things, the connection together. And I feel like right now there is a gap in what most corporate cultures view as, you know, HR benefits versus everything else that's going to actually contribute to employee engagement and therefore business results. I mean, there are, there's a lot of research out there that says that an engaged employee population in every way means more success in the business itself. That's exactly right. Uh, Towers Watson came out with a, in their 2012 global workforce report, they coined the phrase, quote, sustainable engagement. And so starting to connect employee engagement with well-being. And so the three components of, quote, sustainable engagement are energy, engagement, and enablement. So you need to have energy, that's health and well-being, in order to be engaged. And engagement includes things like, you know, feeling like you're connected to your manager, you're getting uh, regular feedback and positive feedback from, as well as constructive feedback from your manager. You feel a sense of purpose in the work that you do. You feel a connection between your own personal purpose and the larger organizational purpose. But then innate is this piece that we've been talking about over and over again is that you have to be working in an environment and a culture in which you are enabled to actually re-energize yourself, for example. So, you know, now we're starting to see organizations that recognize that, for example, that having an afternoon nap might actually help you to perform better. <laughs> and so they're providing uh, quiet rooms or nap rooms or nap pods uh, for people to be able to, to restore themselves. Well, and you you talked about a lot of all that I think into one with it, whether it's your your personal finances, your relationships in the oil and gas industry. Whenever you go out to the rig, the most dangerous time for you is when you first get there and when you're about to go home. Same thing when you first get on tower or, or when you're first about to get off. That's when all the incidents happen. That's hmm. usually when you're more fatigued. You may be hungover from the night before getting out to the rig. You right. maybe just, you know didn't have a good night's sleep. Or you're stressed about something, and now you're thinking about all right, all the bills I didn't get done, get or everything I didn't get done when I was home, and then that last week, it's everything I have to do when I get home. So all, I think all that plays into, and in innocent investigations, we do that too. I don't think it gets enough attention that were they distracted? Why were they distracted? Was it was it personal life? Are they going through a divorce? What what outside factors caused them to make this error? So the whole health and well being goes right into the safety aspect. And, and, and I think one of the uh, a term that I like a lot that was devised by a researcher actually in Texas is this term perceived organizational support. So what is the extent to which I, as an employee for company X, feel like my company actually cares about me? What is the extent to which I feel like my boss 
actually cares about me. And what the research suggests is that oddly enough, when we feel like our organization doesn't care about us or our direct supervisor doesn't care about us, ironically, we're actually less likely to take care of ourselves. And so what I've often seen in organizations that have safety concerns and have safety protocols in place is that you have these people who've been, who quote, know better, and they disregard some of the basic safety protocols. And for many of them, they've been working there for 20, 25, 30 years, and they're disregarding these basic safety protocols. And in many cases, it's because they're, it's a response to feeling like their boss or their organization doesn't care about them. And so when uh, people feel cared for, then they are more likely to to care for themselves. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this, of, of a, a you know positive example. An, a construction company by the name of Skanska, they decided that they wanted to to find a way to really reinforce uh, this phrase that we hear a lot, which is we practice safety so that we can go home safely to our families. And so what they did is they asked each of the the, the workers to bring a picture of them with their family members. And then they took that picture and they actually posted it onto their hard hats. So what that meant then was that when the workers were on the job site, as they would pass by their colleagues, they would see their colleagues' pictures of their family and they and they would make social connections with one another around those pictures. So, you know, for example, you'd look and say, wow, you've got a daughter. I do too. And, and create these conversations about being connected to, to one's family. But it's also a really powerful way to connect back to that phrase of going, uh, practicing safety here so that we can go back safely to our families. I like that idea because yeah, exactly what you said. It's, it's in my experience, people talk about it. Well, you want to go home safe to your family. You're who's counting on you at home, but it's more when you, when it's said like that, I think it's more abstract. It's like nobody's mm-hmm. expecting to go out and lose a finger or lose their life. They're expected to go out and, and do good work. And yeah, they're going to get home to their family. And I think just telling them you want to go home to your family, right. Is more insulting than it is. Well, of course I do. Right. <laughs> but, but actually having a picture of your, your wife, kids and things you care about on your hard hat that one, it, it makes you remember why you're doing it and why you're working safe. But yeah, I think it's a great idea that it it helps you connect with the people that are out there. And I mean, you could, it doesn't have to be a wife and kids. It can be your dog. It can be your mom. It can be, you know, everyone has somebody who wants them to come home. She likes yeah, exactly. the dog more than me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some, some people do. You know, I yeah. love my cat. I'm just going to say that's I'm not ashamed of that. <laughs> Um, so Laura, how, so what are some suggestions? And I know there are some really good ideas in the book. So there's your, I mean, I, I, we both, Patrick and I are big fans. We love the book. Everyone needs a uh, workplace wellness that works, but are there some, are there some easy things that frontline supervisors, man, those, those individual managers can do to make sure that they are, are presenting that right or not right. Maybe, the, you know, the smart approach to their team. You know, if you're, if maybe if you don't have that connection with a team member or, or maybe if you're, you know, if, if you have a team member, you know, is feeling like maybe the organization doesn't care about them, you know, is there something easy that they can do besides, you know, move them to a different job or let them go to help make that better? Because I do believe it does start at home as it were. It, it has to be something that happens on an individual level. So instead of bringing up sleep pods we'll, in our industry, I think we'll get you laughed out of the office. Well, what, I mean, what, what but, is it, where's a good starting point? Yeah, what is a good starting point for those individual uh, supervisors? Well, I always, in working with, with managers and frontline supervisors, I give them three 
words of advice, which is do, speak, and create. So if you simply put into practice, do, speak, and create, you will make a huge difference in your own health and well-being as well as the health and well-being of your team members. So what does that mean? Do means to lead by example. So you model the practice of well-being in these multiple dimensions of well-being that we've talked about already. So physical, emotional, social, community, financial, career. So uh, people on your team are able to see you actually putting those into practice. I'll give you an example. Are you one of those managers who sends out late night emails to your team members? If you do, for every hour of late night emailing that you engage in, you have just increased the odds that your team members will be putting in another 20 minutes of late night emailing themselves. So it's a little bit of monkey semen, monkey do. Whatever you're doing, your team members are going to be doing as well. Are you one of those managers who is multitasking during a meeting and is on your phone while uh, the meeting is happening? Well, you've just increased the odds that your team members will follow suit and do the same thing and will multitask during what might be a really important meeting, might be a, a meeting around safety issues, for example. The second piece is speak. So thinking about engaging your team members in well-being one conversation at a time. So there's you know one thing to get an email blast about the EAP services that we have on on hand here. Employee Vers- assistance program for those. <laughs> okay, thanks. Sorry. Um, versus having uh, the sense like, wow, my manager actually cares about me, and my manager pays attention to things like acknowledging when I've just had an anniversary or acknowledging that maybe I'm having a hard time uh, because my child is sick or feeling safe in the first place to even be able to bring up personal issues. Uh, So a creative way that a manager could start to uh, start to speak in a way that promotes well-being is to, uh, and this is a practice that we do in our so-called managers on the move workshop is to actually write a memo that goes out to every team member about why you value health and well-being and that you really want that you as as a manager or frontline supervisor value the health and well-being of your team members and and this is actually what Jamie Dimon uh, CEO of JP Morgan did where he actually after going through treatment for throat cancer wrote out uh, wrote this beautifully crafted crafted memo that went out to every employee at J.P. Morgan that described his experience in going through the treatment for throat cancer and how he realized through that process that health truly is what matters most and how appreciative he was for all of the support that he received while going through this treatment and that he in turn wanted to extend that support to everybody else at J.P. Morgan. So I will ask managers to write their version of Uh, Jamie Dimon uh, Dimon memo to go out to all of their team members. And then finally, uh, the third piece is to create. So how might I, as a manager or as a supervisor, create new norms within my team that make it easy and normal? So for example, maybe it's having a ritual, like at the beginning of the meeting, people name three good things that have happened to them. There's evidence that suggests that if you simply name three good things for six weeks straight, it will rewire your brain 
to be more optimistic and people who are optimistic are more resilient in the face of stress. So this is why in many hospitals now, they have rituals where healthcare workers are actually naming three good things to increase their resiliency and bringing this back to safety. Guess what happens? Patient safety goes up because if these healthcare workers are managing their stress better, then they're able to care for their patients better. So do speak and create are three very simple things that every manager, every frontline supervisor can start to put into practice. And the idea is that no matter what's happening in the larger organization, I as a manager or as a frontline supervisor can create a little pocket of excellence and a little pocket of well-being within my team. And if I do that, I will literally create a ripple effect and that can start to positively influence the entire organization uh, around me. So I call this a middle out movement. And as you all, as you both know from my book, I really contend that if we want to start to make a difference in people's health and well-being in the workplace, uh, we need to shift our mindset from starting yet another program, yet another check the box program, like filling out that damn HRA or health risk <laughs> assessment and start thinking about starting a movement that is meaningful for people and where it feels like wellness that is done for people as opposed to wellness that is being done to people. And the minute that an organization is putting into, in, 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 into place some kind of wellness program where uh, the intention behind it is for the organization to simply save on its healthcare costs, everybody can detect that immediately. Whereas if this is coming from a place from true compassion, a place where the organization first and foremost is doing this because they actually care about their employees, this is where we start to see a boost in this perceived organizational support that we talked about earlier, where people feel like, wow, my organization actually cares about me. That's why they're investing in this. They're not doing this just for transactional purposes uh, to save on their healthcare costs. I like that because I think it's it's easy to do. It doesn't cost anything, and it's something every manager can do right now. Uh, you did say mm-hmm. something that I wanted to touch on is the uh, I guess the the cost associated with a program on the on a larger scale versus you know the return on the investment. That I think when these wellness programs came out, the they were really pushed as a as a health cost savings. If you have people with working for you that don't smoke, that get out and exercise, you will have. Uh, long-term savings because the lower uh, your claim costs your claim down. costs will go down. But uh, recently, and in the last couple of years, I've seen research that says, well, yes, on a global scale, that's true. So if you look nationally, if all the employees working in the U.S. are on these programs, the system as a whole will will save money. But at the company level, you're spending more money than you're actually going to receive because those employees are going to leave. They they'll leave healthier, and it's better for you know, your own personal uh, mindset that you've made a difference in somebody's life. But the return on investment, I've seen some research come back and say that, all right, it's not there at the company level, but on the national level, it is. So can you talk to that and go beyond the it's good for your employees, but I guess get into the cost savings. Are you going to return a, a, is it going to be a good investment to start one of these programs is I guess the short question, the short uh, version. Yeah, and that's a that's a great question. And certainly there's been a lot of play in popular media where we're seeing headlines, for example, like Bloomberg recently had a headline that was uh, workplace wellness programs really don't work. Or in 2014, New York Times ran an article titled, Do Workplace Wellness Programs Work? Question mark. 
Usually not. And- <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember if you posted something on LinkedIn, but I saw that, you know, do well, well, uh, well, well, programs work. And then it was no, actually, <laughs> yes. Like it was. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't go into the article to see what exactly it was, but it was like, all right, what are you trying to, what what angle are you pushing here? So yeah, yeah. so you know, two, you know, the biggest study to date was a study that the Rand Corporation initiated uh, back in 2013, and in this study, they found that there was an insignificant difference in healthcare costs between participants versus non-participants. So that's what really generated a lot of these these headlines. And then more recently, the University of Illinois conducted a similar study looking at the impact of workplace wellness. And they also found, quote, an insignificant difference in healthcare spending between participants versus non-participants. So there's a lot of complicating factors in this. One is that if, if you launch kind of a standard wellness program, your healthcare costs are actually likely to go up because people are, for example, going to go visit their primary care physician. So you've got more people going there and you're going to identify some uncovered issues that need to be addressed. So, you know, the, the, the famous Safeway story that apparently it had saved all this money on their healthcare costs because of their wellness program, those savings in their healthcare costs were actually before they started their wellness program. <laughs> That's the dirty secret. Um, actually, their healthcare costs went up after they started their wellness program, and act, and then the and then the really funny part of the Safeway story is that Safeway apparently doesn't even have a, a wellness program anymore after they were bought by Albertsons. Albertsons was like, nope, we don't want wellness. <laughs> so, uh, so the the company that defined the wellness component of of the Affordable Care Act doesn't even have a wellness program anymore. But that that's one piece of it. So what the researchers from the the Rand report did you know talk about though, and this wasn't talked about as much, is that getting those savings on healthcare costs may be more like more than a three year proposition. It might be four, five, six, seven years out. It's, it's something that happens over a longer period of time. But I think that the, the the really important piece is that we have to look at this less as a, a return on investment. And A, measuring your return on investment is actually really hard to do and really expensive. So the likelihood that any company X is going to be able to actually measure that is small to, to nil. So that's why we have to rely on these larger studies. Uh, but the, the, the second more important issue is that, as it turns out, the potential savings that come with uh, an effective workplace wellness program in relation to healthcare costs is actually just the so-called tip of the iceberg. And the bigger opportunities for, for savings are in things like attraction and retention. So especially if we're thinking about attracting and retaining millennials, millennials have a higher expectation that the organization that they work for is going to care about them and is going to care about the world. And so millennials often are looking for organizations that have a, a wellness or, or well-being program in place. So really important for attraction and retention. Again, it has to can't be one of those crappy check-the-box wellness programs. It has to be something that's actually meaningful for people. I, I mean, like an example is, what about having elder care ca- classes? 
A lot of people are dealing with aging parents and having an elder care program in place that helps people to better navigate the, the healthcare system and help them to care for their aging parents. That is an example of a wellness program that feels like something that's that's for me and communicates that the organization actually cares about me as an employee. But then there's also the, the, the biggest cost associated with poor health and well-being is something known as presenteeism. And there's research suggesting that presenteeism actually accounts for over 60% of the costs associated with poor health and well-being, whereas the medical costs, that where there's been so much focus on that, only accounts for about 24% of the total costs associated with poor health and well-being. So healthcare costs, that's something that takes a reduction in medical costs. That's something that takes a long time and it's hard to do. But presenteeism, which is showing up, but not really, is something that is here and now. So the research shows that it actually costs a company more when somebody shows up at work, but they're checked out so checked out because they're stressed out about their bank account or stressed out because there's things going on at home or stressed out because uh, they're, uh, you know, checked out because they're just plain exhausted. Yeah. Two o'clock comes around and they're just, they're not, not useful anymore. Exactly. It, it actually costs the company more for those people to come to work than if they were to just stay at home and bringing this back to safety. How can we possibly practice safety when people are checked out? So that's where I think we have to really start looking at, you know, the, the, the bigger equation. I, I mean, for example, do you know what the number one cause of absenteeism is? I'll answer the question for you. It's, it's depression and anxiety and other mental disorders. So somehow we as, uh, as organizations have to figure out a way to begin addressing this taboo topic of mental health in the workplace. And so somebody who is struggling with depression or anxiety or some type of mental disorder is missing, believe it or not, almost 26 days a year, which is almost double the number of days that somebody who's battling cancer is missing, which is the second highest uh, cause of absenteeism for somebody who's dealing with some type of chronic condition or, or disease. That's, that's a pretty amazing comparison to the <laughs> That, that, yeah. that they're that closely related in the amount of time they miss. Right. And I think it comes back to something that we talked about earlier where, you know, if it's your individual manager, members of your team, whoever it is, somebody needs to be paying attention. And, you know, obviously the recent news has brought up issues of mental health again. And I think mm -hmm. that that's something that you need to be paying attention to people and, and letting them talk about whatever they are comfortable talking about or helping them get the help and guidance that they need because it's really it really is I think a lot more widespread than we realize. And I think it can really, right. it has an impact on, on every part of your life. So, you know, keeping people's mental health and, and, and helping get rid of that stigma, like you mentioned, finding a way to talk about it, that's going to help people actually get better and be more productive is just, you know, I, I think that's what everybody wants, right? That's right. And I, and, you know, to your point about how this so often comes down to that manager employee relationship uh, is so critical. And I think one thing that every manager and every frontline supervisor can do is just to start to show some vulnerability around uh, mental health and well-being. And so to start that just by talking about your own mental health, that can start to create a new norm where it's, it's okay for us to be able to, to, to talk about these issues. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've gone a lot longer than we normally do on the show. So I wanted to get into the Red Wing safety tip of the week, Laura, and we usually give that to our guests. If you have a tip that'll make people safer on the job, what would that be? 
I, I think the theme that we've been talking about over and over again is, is that the foundation for safety is not just health, but well-being in these multiple dimensions of, of well-being. So if we want to practice safety in every workplace, we would be wise to start to first create a new norm of health and well-being in our workplace. Awesome. Great tip. So along with that Red Wing safety tip, we are also giving away a Red Wing offshore duffel bag. Mm-hmm. If you want to enter, we stopped announcing the winners on the show, but we are still giving away one bag a week. For rules and details, go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. It's redwingshoes.com. Now, can I that as well? What's that? <laughs> Can I enter that as well? You can, please do. Yes, yeah. It's a really nice bag. Yeah, so mine, mine's actually been offshore, but it gets uh, used mo- most of the time to uh, go to grandma's house and, and pack things up. But uh, it's it's a great bag. Red Wing gives a gives one away a week for our listening audience. And Laura, I, thank you so much for being on the show. I have so many more questions in my notes to to go into. So maybe we need to get back get you back on the show. But uh, I knew this was going to run long today. <laughs> thank you, Laura. <laughs> Love talking with both of you. Great questions. And thanks so if so there's if there's anywhere that people can go to find more about you, um, where they can get the book, what they need to know, where should they go? Where, where do you want to send them? So they can go to the Motion Infusion, so M-O-T-I-O-N-I-N-F-U-S-I-O-N.com website, or you can go to the LauraPutnam.com website. And for those who might be interested in learning more about Workplace Wellness That Works, A, you can buy the book. It's on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the other major distributors. You can also go onto my website to access it. But I also will be leading a two-day train-the-trainer intensive session at on March 26th and 27th in San Diego at the Art and Science of Health Promotion Conference. So an opportunity for people to learn more about it in that. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put links to all that in the show notes. And about the book, yeah, it's like I said, the, the step-by-step way you you laid it out. If you're if you're starting up a wellness program, it will give you a, a guide. Or if you're just a manager that wants to know more about how they can help their their team, I think it's a great resource as well. So go check that out. And events, I'll try and just breeze through this. We've got uh, the IDC SPE Drilling Conference and Exposition in March. LNG 2019 is April. And then we get into the BPMS 150 that the whole oil and gas global network will be at. So uh, if you're going to that, it's a great way to get out and get moving <laughs> to stay on theme. But I think that wraps it up. Uh, Manny, do you have anything else? All right, we well, all be safe out there. Thank you so much. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. What's the craziest thing you've seen out there in the field? say the the examples of the disconnect between the the wellness programs that are in place versus the, the larger culture <laughs> so uh, case in point one company that I worked with they had a they had a, a wellness program that was particularly focused on mental health which is a good idea for all the reasons that we talked about but 
Meanwhile, in a, a number of focus groups that I ran there, there was one issue that came up over and over and over again, it came up in every single focus group, was the fact that they had a television in their employee break room, and the television was set on CNN, and nobody could change the channel. It was <laughs> on that channel. And, and, and all they could talk about was how pissed off they were about the fact that they couldn't change the damn channel. <laughs> and meanwhile, they have all these programs on stress management. And I was like, you guys can cancel all of your stress management programs and just start letting people change the damn channel and that's <laughs> helping them to manage their stress because one of the biggest drivers of stress is actually lack of autonomy or lack of uh, perceived control so i think that that just kind of points to the fact that when it comes to really effectively promoting health and well-being uh, we should just put on our common sense hat <laughs> take yep. a look at the disconnect between uh, what we say we do as an organization, we quote, stand for health and well-being, and yet we have all of these stupid, toxic practices in, in place that communicate just the opposite. I've, right. got, I've got the title for your next book. Hand over the remote. Just give them the remote. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo I love it. 